Good morning. I guess since we're recording this and people will watch it later, I probably shouldn't say good morning, uh, but I'll say that to you. Uh, we're, we're in a series where we're, we're calling it the nativity, where we're looking at the characters around a manger scene, the nativity scene that you may have at your house. We always put one up, and uh, when the grandkids come over and they're little, they all want to play with them. Uh, but I want us to unpack what we're doing in this series from now to Christmas is we're unpacking the characters in that manger scene, in that nativity scene. So today we're going to look at Matthew <clears throat> chapter 1 because we're going to talk about this Christmas character named Joseph, who is an outsider, really, who gets adopted into the story. Anybody else an outsider who gets adopted into the Christmas story? I'm, I'm one of those. So we're going to be uh, starting in Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, and I want to share seven things we learned from the story. Each of these things comes from one of the verses in uh, Matthew 1, 18 through 25, that portion that talks about Joseph and his role. And when we read the Bible, uh, if, if you want to get something out of the Bible, remember this. When we're reading the Bible, we're not reading a history, historical perspective, something that happened a long time ago. We're looking for God's word. We're looking for God to say something to us. So we're reading between the lines. And the Holy Spirit who wrote the story is now inside of us to help us interpret the story. So I can read it and I get one thing out of it. You can read it. You're at a different place in your life. You get something entirely different out of it. But it's the Word of God, so it speaks life to us as we're reading this. So uh, here's Matthew chapter 1, verse 18. It says, This is how the birth of Jesus, the Messiah, came about. His mother Mary was pledged to be married to Joseph, but before they came together, she was found to be pregnant through the Holy Spirit. This is an amazing story. Don't you love amazing stories? The Bible is full of, of great stories. Some stories are just worth retelling again and again and again. Like, uh, like the miracle on 34th Street. We just watched that, what was it, a week ago. Anita and I watched that in our home. We've seen that so many times. Every Christmas we watch that. We know what's going to happen. We know how the story ends. But we just like to see the story told one more time. It's a wonderful life. Just watch that last night. Isn't that an amazing story? How many times have you seen that? You know what's going to happen. You know Clarence gets his wings. You know that because you've already seen the story. But we just like to hear that story told one more time, don't we? Even in black and white, we still want to hear that story told. Some stories are just worth retelling and retelling. You know, the story of Jesus' death on the cross to pay the price for our sin. That story is just worth retelling Amen. again and again. Amen. When on the third day he rose from the dead, and those angels who were standing there guarding the tomb right. passed out backwards, 
when he was raised from the dead, that story is just worth retelling again and again and again. And the Christmas story, I mean the real Christmas story, the story about God becoming man to identify with our sin, coming into this world just like you and I came in as a helpless infant who cried when his parents didn't want him to cry, who dirtied his diaper just like we did. That's an amazing story that's just worth retelling again and again and again. So the first point, if you'd like to take notes, is God wants us to keep telling the story. He wants us as Christians to keep retelling the story. When you get around your kids, if they're little, or your grandkids, remember, the one thing us Christians do is we keep retelling the story because it's worth retelling. Here's the second thing I want us to see. This is in the next verse, verse 19. Because Joseph, her husband, was faithful to the law and yet did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Two things about Joseph leads us to the third thing. The, the first thing is he was faithful to the law. The, the law simply, it, it was the Mosaic law, but to us the law represents the will of God, how God has communicated he wants us to live our lives, and he was faithful to that, which means he's now engaged, he has a serious re- relationship with Mary, but he has not been intimate with her because that's something that God has designed for husbands and wives in a marriage relationship. It says he was her husband. That means he was engaged. He was honor. He was an honorable man. He protected her, loved her, covered her, and he was not going to cross that, that line. But he did not want to publicly disgrace her. Righteous people do the right thing. It's not all about them. She's pregnant, and he's not been intimate with her. So there's a problem. Because when she has the baby, he's going to look like he hasn't been faithful. He's going to look like he has crossed the line. And he doesn't want to look that way. So he's decided before they even have the wedding, he's going to break the engagement. He's going to call it off. Why would he do that? And, and by the way, back then, once you got engaged, you had, you had to give it, get a divorce. It was that final. But they weren't together yet. So he's a righteous man, wants to do the right thing, So he decides to quietly, privately call it off because he knows he will look like he's violated God's law if he goes ahead and marries her because she's pregnant. He thinks she's had an affair with somebody else. And he thinks he's got to break it off because he's doing the right thing. Here's the second thing. God blesses those who hold their tongue. 
There's sometimes you just need to shut your mouth. Because anything you say to defend yourself condemns somebody else. So you just keep your mouth shut. If you love somebody, you keep your mouth shut. Hear what I'm saying? If you haven't been in that place where that was a real test to you, hang, hang on to your saddle because you probably will be put in that place. Because righteous people do the right thing. Here's the test of love. It's how you respond when somebody betrays you. And if you're very old at all, you've had somebody betray you, stab you in the back, tell some fabricated story to make you look worse than you are. That's a betrayal. Make a promise to you and break the promise. It happens on planet Earth with sinners like this in a sinner, sinful world. It happens. The test is how we react to that. And God blesses those who hold their tongue. Here's the, here's the, second, the third lesson. It's, uh, it's found in verse 20. But after he had considered this, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream and said, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary home as your wife, because what is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. See, only God could reveal that to somebody who's living in the real world like you and I live in. You know, everything has cause and effect. But all of a sudden, here's his girlfriend is expecting a baby, and she's not been intimate with anybody. Nobody's going to believe that. It's going to have to be God that reveals that. So this is what happens. And my point is, God conceives the best ideas. He comes up with the best ideas. You and I would have never thought up this plan. A couple of the best ideas that God come up with that man could have never figured out. Number one, it's the idea of life. That was an idea in itself. That there could be people like you and I who can breathe and think and make logical decisions, make a choice between right and wrong, and God would give that life to people Mud man. I mean, God formed us out of mud and breathed into our nostrils the breath of life. You you didn't come from a monkey. You came from mud. Oh, and not only only is the idea of life a great thing, but the idea of sex. God thought it up. He created man, male and female. The first command in the Bible is be fruitful and multiply. God thought this up. This isn't a bad thing. This is a good thing. Oh, and the idea of the incarnation that God would become man. Man could have never thought up that idea. That's a God idea. The best ideas come from God. And then the idea of the Holy Spirit indwelling inside sinful man. 
Man could have never thought that up. Only God could have thought that up. That's a great idea. Because if we didn't have the pure Holy Spirit inside of us, there's no way we could live a pure life. Be impossible for us. But the Holy Spirit, his first name is Holy. That's, that's the character of his personality. The Holy Spirit, when he lives inside of us, he shows us the right thing to do and gives us the overwhelming power to be able to do it. God is so good. The Holy Spirit, the life of God, the nature of God living inside of sinful people like us. Jesus living in our hearts. C.S. Lewis described this, uh, this concept really well in his book, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, where he portrays this character named Aslan who really typifies Jesus Christ. And I'll read a portion of that. Who is Aslan? Asked Susan. Aslan, said Mr. Beaver, why don't you know? He's the king. It is he, not you, that will save Mr. Tumnus. Is, is he a man? Asked Lucy. Aslan, a man? Said Mr. Beaver sternly. Certainly not. I tell you, he is the king of the wood and the son of the great emperor beyond the sea. Don't you know who is the king of beasts? Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Ooh, said Lucy, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. That you will, dearie, and no mistake, said Mrs. Beaver. If there's anyone who can appear before Aslan without their knees knocking, they're either braver than most or just silly. Then he isn't safe, said Lucy. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Don't you hear what Mrs. Beaver tells you? Who said anything about safe? Course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king, I tell you. That's Jesus at work in our heart. If I open my heart, if I allow Jesus, the Son of God, to come into my heart, is, it, is he safe? No way. He's not safe. He's going to turn our life upside down. He's going to pull the old me up by the roots and transplant me in something good. Is he safe? Absolutely not. But he's good. He's good. So God conceives the best ideas. Here's the, the fourth lesson from our story. This is found in verse 21. She shall give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus, because he will save his people from their sin. That's what the name Jesus means, Savior. It's another form of the word Joshua, Savior. So here's, here's the point. God uses man to accomplish his plan. God will always use a man or a woman to accomplish his plan. God doesn't do anything without you and I getting involved. It's when you and I get involved, we see miracles. Yes. If we're just waiting on God to show up and do a miracle, just waiting for the Holy Spirit to come into the place and move, we're never going to see anything. You see, the Holy Spirit's already come in this place. He lives inside of me. He lives inside of you. The Spirit of God is in this room already. But if we just sit and wait for the move of the Spirit, Come on. 
we're not going to see anything. It's when you and I decide to stand up and speak or do something that we see the move of the Spirit. So it's a father, biblically, it's a father's responsibility to name the children. It's his job to come up with the name of the children. A lot of us men in this room, we've abdicated that to our wives. Let the wife come up with the name. Biblically, it's the father's role. He said, you will name him Jesus because he's going to save his people from their sins. So Joseph has to step up to the plate. He's got to assume some responsibility here. So the Bible is full of accounts of God using men and women to accomplish God's will. That's what the Bible is. It's story after story of God using men and women. In the Old Testament, it's a story of God using people like Moses, David, Elijah, all of whom couldn't figure out why God would want to use them. Each of those people argued with God. Why me, God? Isn't there somebody who can do this job better than me? Well, the reason you is because I've chosen you. That's the answer, because God chooses us. Isn't there somebody around who could be a better representative of God on this earth than you? Then why did he choose us? Because he must see something in us that we can't see. God's got... God's got more faith than I do. He's got faith in us. I don't know why, but he's got faith in me. He's got faith in you. This is exciting. In the New Testament, it's the same thing. It's how God used ordinary people like Joseph to step in and be an earthly father for this helpless baby Jesus. It's the story of the disciples and what they did and how God worked through them. And today, it's the story of people like me and people like you and how God works through ordinary, dysfunctional, problematic people like us. All right, here's here's number five, the fifth lesson we learned. And this is coming from uh, verses 22 and 23. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin shall conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. Here's the fifth point if you want to write it down. God always honors his word. Yes. If God promised something in the Old Testament, just look in the New Testament and you'll probably see the answer. Amen. God always honors his word. And he still does today. That principle hasn't changed. So you and I need to get into the word, see what promises God's given to people like us, and we need to hang on to it because God will always honor his word. His word will never return void. It will accomplish the purpose he intended when he sent his word. He's given us great promises. I don't know if you knew this, but the promises in the Bible are ours to grab a hold of. The devil doesn't want us to claim these promises. He wants us to think that was for somebody else in bygone days that really isn't relevant today in the 21st century. That's, what the, that's the lie the enemy wants to put in our head. But I want you to know these promises are principles. And if we'll do this, God will do that. Did you know he's given us a promise of health? 
Exodus chapter 23, 25. This is what God said to the Israelites. And I know we're not Israelites. I know that was Old Testament. This is New Testament. But I think this is a principle God is speaking to us. Exodus 23, 25 says, Worship the Lord your God. That's the command. And his blessing will be on your food and water. I will take away sickness from among you. That's a promise. There's a condition. The condition is worship the Lord your God. If you worship your TV set and all those great programs that are on there, God doesn't give us that promise. If we worship our political party, if we worship anything, our business, if we worship our hobby, if we worship anything, if we put that above God, these promises are, are null and void. Worship the Lord your God. In other words, if we'll step into the covenant, God promises to keep the covenant. Here's another promise you may not know was in there. It's a promise for plenty. I'm not a prosperity, name it, claim it guy, but he has promised us prosperity in his word. Listen, Deuteronomy chapter 30, verses 8 and 9. He says, you will again obey the Lord, that's the command, And follow his commandments I am giving you today. Then the Lord your God will make make you most prosperous in all the work of your hands and in the fruit of your womb, the the, the young of your livestock and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in you and make you prosperous just as he delighted in your ancestors. Listen, the devil doesn't want you to know this promise is in the Bible. It is a conditional promise. You got to obey me. You got to do what I tell you. God still speaks to his people. If you spend some time in prayer, get into the word of God, you will hear God speak to you. It'll be a still small voice and you can miss it if you don't pay attention. He will tell us what to do. Here's another promise. He promises to protect us. God promises to protect us. Second Chronicles 16.9 says, For the eyes of the Lord range throughout the earth. God's always watching. He's looking for opportunities and he's looking for obstacles. Yes. And he's all, his eyes are always moving, looking for obstacles and opportunities. It goes on. It says they range throughout the earth to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. See, this is a conditional promise. The condition is your heart has to be fully committed to him. Even when the tests come up, that's that's how he knows. So God's always looking for obstacles in your path. And he's always looking for opportunities in your path to set before us, open doors. I'm so thankful for these promises, I'm hanging on to them. The older I get, the more sure I see these promises are. I see them work in my life. I see them work in the lives of so many other people. The one thing that can keep, I I probably shouldn't say this because I'll make somebody mad. I was believing that God was going to prosper me. I was claiming the promise and I couldn't figure out why it wasn't working. You know what I finally figured out? I was working at a job where I had a contract and they were going to pay me a certain amount 
That was a part of the contract. God's hands were tied. He couldn't bless me there because I had a contract. I'm not so sure that worldly contracts are always the best thing because it limits God. Once I wasn't in that arrangement where I had a contract, then God's blessings began to flow freely. Come on. See, I told you, some of you are mad at me. Here's, here's number six. God is with us. That's the lesson from the story. God is always with us. We read that in Matthew 1.23. I read it a moment ago. Emmanuel means God with us. He's not only going to be named Jesus, but people are going to call him Emmanuel. And Emmanuel means God with us. I'm so glad God's with me. Because I'd be sunk if God wasn't with me. I make just enough bad decisions my life would be sunk if it wasn't for God covering my tracks. Am I the only one? No. I don't think so. A couple things. Number one, you're never alone. Sometimes we feel like we're alone. Sometimes we feel like there's nobody got our back. Nobody's watching out for us. Listen, church, you are never alone. This is what the scripture tells us. You are never alone. He's always got your back. He's always right there beside you. This is a good time for me to tell my early, earliest Christmas memory was going Christmas shopping with my mom and dad and had a couple younger siblings at that time, but I was, I was just a kid. I, I was in elementary school, maybe first grade, real little, and we went to the five and dime store. They used to have five and dime stores. We went to a five and, five and dime store in Butler, and back in the back of the store, they had some islands, and they had all kinds of toys in there. That's where I went. I was looking at the toys. I was dreaming about what Santa was going to bring me for Christmas. <coughs> Mom and Dad were doing shopping somewhere else, and I remember my, my, uh, my sister coming to me saying, Mom and Dad are ready to go. And I said, okay, I'll be there in just a minute. I was fascinated with the toys. I had to work my way around that island one more time, look at all the cheap gadgets I was looking at. My sister came back and said, we're leaving right now. Dad says we're supposed to go. I said, I'll be there in just a minute. Well, I, was, I had a problem called ADHD. I was focused on the toys. I can, you know, when attention deficit disorder, you can't concentrate on something unless you want to. I wanted to focus on those toys. I had to make one more lap around, got sidetracked, forgot the time, looked up, couldn't find my family, ran to the front of the store. They weren't there. Ran back to the back to see if maybe I crossed paths. They weren't back there. I run back up to the front of the store again, looked out, and there was my dad outside the store peeking around looking in the window. <laughs> you see, my father never took his eyes off me. I was left behind, but he never took his eyes off me. Your father will never take his eyes off you. He sees your hurt. He sees your disappointment. He sees your struggles, but he never takes his eyes off you. He sees your rebellion, but he's always got his eyes on you. God in a flesh body just like us, identifying with our human weakness. 
God in a hostile environment, identifying with our tragedies. God in a terminal condition. You know, humans, we're all terminal. Did you know that? Identifying with our hopelessness, yet always an overcomer. Living in us so that we could always be overcomers no matter what we had to deal with. This is good news, church. Let's go to the last point because i got a minute and a half left. Number seven, God requires obedience. It says in Matthew chapter 1, verse 24, When Joseph woke up, he did what the angel of the Lord had commanded him and took Mary home as his wife. Happy ending. Don't you love happy endings? I believe that's part of the kingdom experience, happy endings. But we wouldn't even know it was a happy ending if there wasn't some tragedy in the process getting through the story. The reason we celebrate happy endings to to movies and books that we read, the reason we celebrate happy endings is because of the trauma and the tragedy and the disappointment that the story unfolds. It's when we we finally get the breakthrough, when we finally become overcomers. Joseph took responsibility. He wasn't just a spectator. He was a participant in the Christmas story. God's will for you and I is that we are not just spectators. We are participants in this story of redemption, in this story of salvation, of conversion, transformation. Bringing out of a bad story a better end. The reason I love working with you Right, right here in this room and those of you that are, that are watching online. The reason I love relating to you and working with you is because I know many of your stories. Not everybody's. I'd like to hear everybody's story. But the stories I do know. I remember how messed up you were when you first came through those doors. How full of pain and brokenness you were when you first came in here. And I love working with individuals whose lives are messed up to bring a better end. This is what Christianity ought to be. This is what we all ought to do. Instead of griping and complaining about everybody else, we ought to see our mission as helping their life become better. How can we help bring somebody out of a bad picture into a better picture? How can we make this world a better place? Go wash that mud off your eyes and you'll be healed, Jesus said to one guy. Go tell the priest you've been cleansed and you'll be healed of your leprosy, he said to some others. Go catch a fish and look in his mouth and you'll find the money to pay those taxes you can't afford to pay, he said to Peter. Go cast your net on the other side and you'll catch those fish you can't find. Go, go, go. He's always telling somebody to go do something. Go do something and they'll find an answer. Go do something and they'll find a miracle. Go do something and they'll be delivered. It's always a go. It's obedience is required. We have to step up to the plate. We have to do what we've been called to do. So Joseph, here's, 
Here's where Joseph becomes somebody worth talking about this morning. He stepped into God's plan and helped God's plan become a reality. Somebody had to be a father in baby Jesus' life. Somebody had to be a mentor. Show him how to be a carpenter and build, build things. Somebody had to do that. Joseph stepped up to do that. Is he going to look like he's been unfaithful? Oh, yeah. It's going to look like he's not been Mr. Holy. It's going gonna, it's gonna to look bad on his character, but he steps up to do it. Our church, individually and corporately, we need to step into God's plan. And God's plan is to take a broken world and make it better. That's his plan. We need to do that. I need to invest in individual people whose lives are broken and make them better. When we find another church that's hurting and broken, I believe it's God's design for us to step in and make it better. Like we're doing right now in Auburn. I appreciate you praying for that situation because that's redemption. That's transformation. That's Christianity at work. We don't just talk about it. We practice it. I want you as an individual to not just talk about it, but see yourself. The Spirit of God's inside of you. God can use you to make this world a better place. Don't just be a spectator in Christianity by going to church. Be a participant by being the church. Stepping into someone else's life. So the question for you is, are you a spectator or are you a participant? And maybe you are a spectator, but you want to be a participant. You just don't know how or you don't have the confidence. Listen, it's, it's, not, it's never you, so it's okay to feel insecure. It's the Spirit of God inside of you. You just have to be natural and be yourself and start talking to somebody about what you believe. Start talking to your coworkers. Start talking to people in your family. Start talking to your children. It's, it's not the pastor's job to educate your children to Christian things. That's what mom and dad do. And if they won't do it, it's what grandma and grandpa does. But it's something we have to step into. Amen? Christmas is about life. God becoming man so that you and I could live. And living is about investing in someone else's life because it's the life of Christ. That's where you get your life. It's Christ living in us and allows us to minister to someone else. So I want to encourage you, look at your world, look around you at the world. Those of you that are home, look around you at your world. Who are the neighbors? Who are your family? Who are the people that you know? And ask God, how can you invest in their life? How can you help their life become better? And God will begin to use you. I believe there'll be a revival going on in some of your places of employment. I saw that happen. I believe it can happen again. Amen. Lord, I want to pray for that very thing. That you will open our hearts, open our understanding to what you want to do. So that we can truly be an alive church. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.